the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a great question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, we're going to talk with the uh, authors of a new book called Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. And uh, they join me by phone. We're talking about co-authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller. Uh, Ellen, Larry, welcome to the show. Hello? I'm not hearing them respond back. Well, maybe we've got a little problem with the connection. Um, Ellen, why don't you go ahead and disconnect and and call back, and we'll see if we can uh, get connected a little better. Uh, In any event... um, this is a project that's uh, successfully, let's see if we can get them connected in now. There we go. Have we got you? Ellen, Larry? Y- yes. Oh, okay. Great. Well, welcome to the show. Sorry about all that, and welcome to live radio. Larry, are you with us as well? Hold on one second. I'm going to loop him in. <laughs> okay. Sorry for that confusion. Yeah, no worries. Can you hear us now, Tom? Um, Ellen, I can hear you. Larry, are you with us as well? I am as well. Okay, now the uh, let's see if I can uh, if I can characterize this well this this uh, properly. Um, you have uh, both been um, involved in um, worker organizing and and other kinds of uh, community activism. What led to writing this book? Well, uh, I had written some essays uh, of my work, particularly in the South, and um, there really wasn't a genre uh, for them. Uh, so I went to Ellen and I said, "What about doing? Some, what about doing some fiction work with these? You know, maybe some short stories." And she she uh, said, "What a great idea!" But let's let's turn uh, your story, let's connect your stories with some of the work that I've done and the work that we've done together. And uh, 
turn it into a book. And, uh, you know, that's how it evolved. And when we talked to the publisher at Hardball Press, he loved the idea, but he wanted it to be a novel with a through line. And we thought, okay, we can make about a couple. Uh, a young white guy from Wisconsin, working class kid who goes to the South to get involved in the struggle and learn from black workers. And along the way, maybe five chapters later, he meets a young woman um, in Baltimore, and they get married and have two kids, and then there's a bunch of chapters about the organizing that she does, and then other characters who we've been inspired by in our lives. So it was an opportunity to do something we really wanted to do, which is highlight the deliberately unheard, the people who, of course, have a voice but don't have a megaphone and are, get excluded from literature and culture in the same ways they get excluded from power, and show the moments where they realize that the exploitation they face is not normal or necessary or inevitable. It can change, and that they, in fact, are the agent of that change if they work together. That's what led us to do it. Is the couple in the book modeled after you and Larry Allen? Yeah, I mean, um, we. the good thing about fiction is we get to uh, fill in some blanks. This book spans 50 years, so we may not remember every conversation. Um, and we get to uh, expand and, you know, tweak where it helps. Like the backstory of a character named Sophie is different from mine. Um, it just made it easier to, to tell the story. But the kids are inspired by our kids. Most of the individual struggles that are described in the book we either lived through or knew people who did and were inspired by so in in some ways it's it's a bit of a memoir uh it is and yet the fiction allowed us to do something i think that was really helpful uh it made it i think there's a lot of people who will read fiction and read stories and it made it a vehicle for communicating these important lessons about standing up for yourself and others and that we can win and what that looks like and how it changes us to be part of that journey in really positive ways. Um, and also, we didn't have to worry about everything being completely accurate. Um, it gave us flexibility. That was, you, you know, really exciting. You could take a little literary license. That's right. Larry, um, can you share a couple of examples, maybe called from your original essays, about um, how people maybe set an example of standing up? Well, the first article actually was an experience that I was involved in at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where uh, the working conditions were horrific and and uh, so what we describe in the book was uh, some images that I had seen <clears throat> in, in working in that, uh, in that area. And so, um, uh, for example, the way the hospital did things is, is uh, if something was contaminated up on the floors, they would wrap it in a, in a um, sheet and put a piece of tape on it and say contaminated, <laughs> and we would process it uh, the exact 
the exact same way we processed everything else. And so we had put forward, and in the story, the, the uh, workers put forward uh, demands, and they're not paid any attention to. And so it leads to a slowdown where the where the uh, clothes start going up, the uh, piling up the chutes of the hospital, and, you know, it, uh, this crisis is created, and then one of the workers is fired, and uh, there's a work stoppage. And so it shows both the horrible working conditions, but it also shows uh, the, re- the resistance and the, and the success of the workers. And one of the interesting things was uh, Nick is the only white person in the story. Everyone else, 40 uh, African-American women that came up from the South, and this is the job they could get, and seven black men. Um, and there were some clear lessons that we, that we draw in terms of uh, unity uh, on race and class in, in this story that was actually true. You know, you point out in the uh, in the book, Ellen, that um, uh, some of the characters in the book um, were enraged by uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, then President Reagan's uh, cuts to public assistance, and a narrative that that defined the poor as the problem. Um, in the in the wake of this pandemic. Um, has has that sentiment been pretty well buried as we've taken frontline workers and elevated them to essential status? Uh, well, it depends uh, who who you're talking to. For many people, the, there's been a new understanding of what essential worker means and who's the most important in keeping our society going and keeping things running. But if you look at public policy... There are millions of women who've had to, who've been kicked out of the workforce because they can't get childcare or they can't get paid leave. Um, you know, the draft. Yeah, that's been part of the equation, hasn't it? Um, you know, I, I think women for several years were, were breaking even. They, they weren't making, uh, the same amount of money for the jobs they were doing that, that men would. And they were paying child care and, uh, in some cases, very expensive transportation costs. And and when they added it all up, they were sort of breaking even. And the pandemic set people down for a little bit. They got a chance to think, why would I go back to work just to break even? I don't think it's even about going, can I break even? Literally, there are people who can't find child care. There are child care yeah, providers who are desperate to work and couldn't afford to stay open. And we've been trying for, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic to pass a bill, Build Back Better, that has <laughs> terrific provisions to fix this. Um, and And it's been blocked. Every Republican has voted against it and won't won't, you know, give a hoot about it. And so you can't say that the society yet values essential workers in the ways that they need. Also, the work that women do, the care work, whether it's in the home or the work of people who take care of our most you know, valuable resource, our youngest children uh, or aging adults, that work is terrifically undervalued because it's seen as what women do for free in the home. That has to change. 
in the book and and the stories that that you share in the book and the things that happen during the the unfolding of of the overarching story um is there built into it something that can be done or are we primarily just pointing out the problems well what we attempt to show <clears throat> is that uh where there is this exploitation and oppression there is going to be uh, resistance and there are many things that can be done and many policies that can be changed. Um, this country does not, does not, uh, at least the uh, business, the majority of the business community does, does not look favorably on uh, enough on worker rights, on, on uh, family supporting policies. And what we try to show in this book that uh, it can be done uh, both uh, locally, uh, within individual uh, companies, uh, but that it can also be done nationally. And uh, there's uh, so much that can be done. I mean, Build Back Better was an example of something that would have uh, been of great value to to essential workers, to the poor, to the working class. One of the things that that we realized, that we've experienced in our lives and that we wanted to share, as Larry was saying, is the joy of being part of this and the fact that that those moments when workers get this realization and step into power and find out that the um like amazon workers in staten island just did even though a gazillion dollar company spends so much money on union busters and propaganda and lies and barriers when people have the opportunity to listen and talk to each other and are creative in their strategy and build relationships, they can prevail. It doesn't mean they always will, and we have to shore up the policies that would help, like the PRO Act, would really make it take away some of these barriers to unionization that tilt right now in in favor of the business lobby and the giant corporations. But the power is within our reach, and I think there's lots of examples of where that's happened, and our book spotlights a number of them. Who are some of the the people that are um, what's the what's the phrase you used? Um, the deliberately unheard. Deliberately unheard. Yeah. Actually, so the, actually you know, let's let's revisit that in a moment because I have to take a break here. Um, Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller are the co-authors of Standing Up: Tales of Struggle. Uh, Ellen, Larry, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, sure. Great. Um, if you're listening to us on WFOV. Uh, our voice is Radio 92.1 LPFM Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We have more of the Tom Sumner Program coming up straight ahead. Everybody's doing 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation uh, about um, standing up for the uh, deliberately unheard, which has been made sort of a career, if you will, by uh, my guests this hour, the co-authors of a new book called Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. And uh, the husband and wife team are Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller, who joined me by phone. Ellen, Larry, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. That's <laughs> fine. Some very creative ads. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you think so. Um, we were talking just before the break, and, and I'm going to get this, this phrase locked in my head, deliberately unheard. Um, because the, do you think that it's intentional or at least some effort goes into ignoring certain people in our uh, culture, our society? Well, depending on who you're talking about, the powers that be, absolutely it's intentional because if the voices of the essential workers and and the people who work without whose work our society literally would not function, if they could really be heard, if they could be seen um, doing the, what they do and um, scraping by and having so much hardship and barriers along the way and being mistreated, um, a lot of people would say, oh, wait a minute, why am I angry at them? Um, they're not the people who are causing me problems it's the we have a lot in common uh, and maybe they'd all we all unite against those who are really responsible for the problems in our lives so it's much easier to misinform and not let us see the real lives of fill in the blank immigrants or people in black communities or people who are living in poverty or people who happen to be trans because it's more convenient than to stereotype them and in in, in spend a, misspend a lot of anger um, on, on their behalf as if they're responsible for the ills of society rather than those who are gouging themselves on other people's misery. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty deliberate strategy. So what we try to do in the book is show the, you know, show the experiences of those uh, in the corporate uh, answering services, uh, in the, the bank tellers, the uh, community folks that, you know, have to deal with, have to deal with health care or welfare um, and describe what is actually uh, going on in their lives and what happens when they take a stand and stand up uh, for what is clearly uh, right and uh, justified. Is there a... um a, a template, a, a model for standing up and, and being heard, or is it different from case to case? Well, of course, it varies, you know, depending on the kind of working conditions and who the workforce is or the community group. But there are some things that are a through line to all of it. First of all, there's no substitute for 
the w- good work of building relationships and trust, getting to know each other as real people, seeing what we have in common, and also seeing where the additional burdens and, of and racism who, are. Who needs to forge yeah. or strengthen those relationships? People with their coworkers. Um, well, they, look at what happened in the uh, Amazon, and it, it's a very similar thing. Is our chapter called "The Union Makes Us Strong"? Um, in both cases, it's a workforce that's been uh, treated as disposable, and uh, you know can be thrown out at will. And people who are underpaid and whose work is undervalued and who work too hard and get too few breaks, etc. And what the workers do in our novel and also in real life of Staten Island is among themselves form a committee with the help of, in the book, a union, but the work is really reliant on the relationships that workers already have with each other and then going to each other's homes, uh, getting to know each other in real time, and listening to the kinds of concerns they have, showing how the demands and the union will protect them and uh, busting through the exposing the lies of the union busters that the you know big execs bring on to try to stop it that's i think a, those are some common threads you know you point out that the um the me too movement that uh put sexual harassment on the front page um was made up largely of high-profile, affluent white women, and that prior to that movement, there were women of color and poor women, like Soledad in your book, that were putting up with that kind of treatment all along. But has have the efforts of people um, that, that launched the, the Me Too movement, has that had any kind of... Um, trickle-down effect to other people that, that weren't necessarily included from the beginning in that movement? The exciting thing about the resistance to sexual harassment and sexual assault, uh, first of all, it's been going on for a long time. Nine to Five was working on this in the 90s. The training that you see in the book, Feminists and Firefighters, that Sophie and her friend Vanessa do, that was a real training that we've done for years. So it wasn't, uh, there, there were efforts before the Me Too movement that were focused on low-wage women. I think the Me Too movement and Time's Up have helped in lots of ways by making it more visible and more unacceptable to carry out this behavior and by raising money that does reach some low-wage workers, but not enough. And there's still a whole lot of work to be done. And really that means resourcing those groups, the groups that exist on the ground, that are building that power um, and just need more uh, support in doing that. You know, for a long time, uh, there were debates about whether or not to blend government programs with faith, faith-based initiatives. Um, and, and churches were looked to, of, of a variety of denominations, to help with certain social problems. Are they still on the front lines, or has that changed, and, and how come? Well, the the um, uh, faith movement has grown and done some very good work around the country. 
Um, but there's also a, you know, an evangelical movement that is uh, Trump-supporting and blames the poor, uh, you know, for their, for their conditions. And uh, this has become even a greater debate. I, there, there were recent articles about a split among evangelicals in terms of its uh, around support for for Trump, there's one wing that thinks he's a, a gift from God, and another wing that's starting to realize that there's that uh, that there's a reality out there. So, uh, the faith-based organizations have had a certain amount of, of success, but uh, we have to go, uh, you know, far far beyond that. But for example, um, uh, the uh, Minister from uh, North Carolina, uh, Reverend Barbie, uh, Reverend Barber, um, right, Ellen? Reverend Barber, right, right, right. Uh, is organizing a demonstration next month, and and uh, it, it should be very significant. Um, some of this organizing is is exemplary. You know, it's like everything else. There are uh, different factions, so. Within the faith-based movement, there's a social justice faction, and people like Reverend Barber have done a great job linking various forms of oppression. His focus has always been on people living in poverty, but he's always talked also about the importance of fighting sexism and racism and homophobia and linking all of this to economic justice. At the same time, you have organized Catholic groups putting out, unfortunately, really destructive things about uh, women's control over their reproductive freedom, about trans individuals and um, sexual identity, and causing a lot of harm. So we're excited by the social justice wing of the faith-based movement and have worked with them for a long time. One of the chapters in our book is called Should Banks Care About Kids? And there's a great a multi denominational interfaith group that comes to support these workers. And, um, you know, there's a little, someone starts by saying, um, a rabbi, an email, and a minister, and this isn't the start of a joke. They're all going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> and, and that often is what happens. Yeah, they didn't walk into a bar. That's right. <laughs> um, well, let me, let me, uh, see how how this um how this plays because one of the things that gets talked about a lot on my show and especially on uh, some of the political segments is the lack of trust that people have in elected officials in even appointed officials government agencies and overseeing uh groups uh, regulatory groups and and even scientists and and medical people and and I'm just wondering with so much distrust who can carry a message that people will look to and and believe in and and maybe um, adopt and, and emulate Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a big difference between um, what, what starts, what, what matters the most is in whose interest and for whose benefit people are speaking. But when you have politicians who 
get large donations from the National Rifle Association and who are uh, intimidated about saying anything about gun violence, for example, you know that's not someone I can trust. When you have people, on the other hand, who expose the role of the National Rifle Association or of money in politics and who are trying to regulate price gouging and say who's really responsible for inflation and rising prices, then those are people you can listen to. And often, excitingly, and more and more, those are people who come from the movement, who are supported by grassroots organizing and responsive to it. So you have people like Greg Kassar in Austin, Texas, who's going to be in Congress, Pramila Jayapal, who's organized the Progressive Caucus and to be a force to be reckoned with. Those are folks that we know we can trust because of where they come from. And the same thing, you know, you might have someone who claims to be a community leader, but in fact they're being backed by the business lobby and, you know, looking for solutions that they say will help kids in the schools, but that in fact are trying to turn it over to private equity funds. Those are people not to trust, whereas people who are trying their best to fight for public education and to keep resources in the hands of the people. So I think always asking that question, who's behind them, in whose interests are they operating, who's going to benefit by what they're saying, that's a good way to determine who to trust. I, I'm finding the dust-up between uh, Florida Governor uh, DeSantis and um, Disney World to be one of particular interest and and not just a little bit of amusement because you know the um, DeSantis, a Republican, has always been real pro-business and and um, Disney World is is a huge business in that part of uh, Florida and and it's interesting that they've taken uh, that that they've split over a social issue and it's it's interesting to watch as the republican uh, leader there in in Florida is um is taking on a big business over a social issue and it just seems uh I, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. I don't even know if there's a <laughs> word for it. Have you guys got any ideas on, on how to sort that out and, and explain it? <laughs> well, there's, when, when you resort to populism, right-wing populism like DeSantis has in his attempt to run, to uh, be a replacement for Trump and actually run for president, he, he as, as our is the right wing as a whole are using the cultural wars to advance their, uh, you know, advance their situation, you know, their situation and, and to try to make gains. And they're even willing to sacrifice their ties to the, to large business enterprises to, uh, to do that. That is going to hurt them in the long run when they isolate themselves from, uh, from, from business. It will not, it will not be in their favor. It'll, it's going to cause them problems. And, uh, you know, I, I welcome that, that split between Disney because Disney, you know, has taken some progressive stands around uh, LGBTQ uh, issues. And so um, uh, DeSantis is not being, being smart in that situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's great. And, and I have to say, a lot of credit 
to groups like Color of Change and Main Street Alliance and others who've made demands on big business and who've galvanized small businesses to speak up about, you know, be clear who represents us and who doesn't. And workers at Disney who protested and said, you've got to speak out about this ridiculous and offensive policy that they're doing of banning books and telling us teachers what they can teach and saying you can't say gay and um, we won't, you know, we can't stand for it. And that pressure is what causes sometimes big corporations to take a good stand and create those kinds of tensions and, and contradictions. And um, I think that's what Ellen, is saying, what Ellen is saying is critical because it, it's true. And I left that out when I just met, spoke about it is that the workers at Disney said, Hey, if you, if you want our, if you want our support as a company, you, you have to take a stand on this. And that was a driving force. So it really does put the workforce at, a huge employer in Florida in contradiction with this this right-wing uh, demagogue, uh, Governor DeSantis. Well, and I'm finding it kind of interesting as I see some businesses, and some are probably doing it better than others. Some of it is is probably more PR than, than actual uh, substantive change. But, but that the free market has influenced some businesses to start going more green. Yeah, and, you know, this what you said is really important about PR, though. We had a friend who was a consultant at Walmart, uh, hired by Walmart to help them with their green approach, and there were three components. One was uh, things they could do as a company. Second was things that the individual workers could do. And the third was their brand. And really all they cared about was their brand. And when he realized that, he quit, stopped doing it. And he said, I won't help them look good. I want people to actually change their practices. So there are some companies, I think, who are genuine about wanting to save the planet and the environment um, and not just their own, how they look. Um, and there are some companies, I think, that are more conscious about the importance of fighting things like racism and sexism. But unfortunately, a lot of them, it's still just lip service. And, you know, there's a, the, the work we really need to do is ask who's in charge, who's making decisions, do workers have a voice? And if they really want to say they stand with workers, then make sure that they, have, that they support unionization and workers being able to speak for themselves. What is it that you two are hoping um, people will, will take away from your book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle? Well, the first thing is uh, hope that uh, even small victories matter, and the daily lives of of workers and a lot of the workers in this book are uh, uh, women, low wage workers, and we want uh, people to say uh, it's doable to uh, to make change, and uh, these are some of the what we try to put forward are some of the tactics that we've seen around the country, whether there's a stand up, a slow down, a work stoppage, a news conference, a daily organizing, uh, building trust, building relationships. These are the things that, that uh, people have to take on and, and uh, have some patience to actually uh, make progress. We hope they'll also think it's a great story. We're proud that many people have said that and said that it's full of humor 
but also that it's full of joy and that it normalizes the life of an activist. It shows people who are, you know, regular folk who get married, fall in love, have kids, like to eat, have sex, have fights, have grief, um, but also have celebrations and build community. And that's a great life to have. We hope that they'll take that away as well. And they can go to our website, ellenbravo.com, to find out how to get the book from Hardball Press or their local independent bookstore or anywhere, really, and, um, you know, see some of where we're going to be having book talks or virtual talks and join us. Yeah, I was just I was just going to ask that, Ellen, where people could find out more about um, you and Larry and your work past, present, and uh, future. What's up next for you guys? Well, we're going to be doing a, an in-person event in New York City on June 8th. We're doing a couple of virtual events on June 2nd and June 14th. And we um, you know, love talking with your listeners uh, at any of those opportunities or more. Um, was this a, uh, how, how long have you been working on this book? I, I'm tempted to, to ask if it was a uh, project of the uh, COVID quarantine. Exactly. That's what we did. <laughs> That's how we spent our time rather than just, uh, you know, being uh, next to each other, physically next to each other for two years. We said let's do let's do some work with this. Let's get some work. Well, and good for done. you because you know uh, a year in, I talked to uh, a couple of very successful writers who said, you know, I could have been writing all this time, and I just stood there like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a great project, and um, I was really glad when Larry came to me and said, "Can can you help me make this into fiction? And do you think this is a good idea?" And it made, it was, you know, just the solution to these unpublished pieces I had. And it gave us an opportunity to do this creative work together that was really fun. I think there's, um, you know, there's so much that you share as a couple when you've been together this long, raising wonderful kids and having friendships and, you know, being part of community. So being able to capture a lot of that in this novel was really exciting. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, spending this time with me this morning and uh, encourage you to keep up the good work. Appreciate you. you so much. Really do. I, I appreciate your uh, your thoughts and your comments. All right. Take care. Once again, that was uh, uh, a married couple. Uh, they are Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller, the co-authors of Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. Um they uh oh they've been active in uh supporting issues surrounding the deliberately unheard for uh for many years um including um work with the uh for over a decade with the organization 9 to 5 the National Association of Working Women and uh Anyway, we're going to take a uh, short break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. But don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's still lots more of the Tom Sumner Program coming up uh, straight ahead, and I hope you'll uh, stay with us. 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. John Henry was a little baby, baby. sitting on his daddy's knee. Uh, he picked uh, up a hammer and a little uh, piece of steel and said, Goo 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 Daddy picked him up, threw him on the floor, says this baby's done wet on me. <laughs> I I I apologize. Oh, I one more chance. One more chance is all you get. See this pin? It says think ethnic. You gotta think ethnic and sing ethnic to ever earn this pin. When John Henry was a little baby Sitting on his daddy's knee He picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel And said this hammer be the death of me, Lord, Lord Hammer be the death of me Yeah, when John Henry was just a little tyke He picked up a piece of steel and a hammer it seemed like he knew all the time, down deep inside, that he was gonna work on the railroads. And there was a big story waiting for him to arrive on. Why was a little boy used to go around hammering on things? His daddy bought him a little hammer. Let's go around hammering the tables and hammering the fixtures. We <laughs> used to get a licking all the time to go up and hammer on the front door. Hammer on the chairs. Yet as John Henry grew, he grew in size, and he grew in stature, and he grew in his mind, his horizons grew. He started going out and got a bigger hammer. Started walking around town hammering things. Hammering trees, people's fences, fire hydrants. Why John Henry could just go around hitting one fire hydrant with one mop. Whop. Yeah. All dogs in town hated John Henry. <laughs> well, the whole story goes is that when he grew to full size, he could drive steel on the railroad, drive those spikes in the ground faster than any ten men. People started talking about John Henry. Why is the fastest man that ever drove steel on the railroad? And the whole story of John Henry really starts 
the day the captain told John Henry something. John Henry said, tell me something, Captain. <laughs> then the captain said, John Henry, I'm gonna bring me a steam drill round. I'm gonna bring me a steam drill out on the job. I'm gonna pop that steel on down, Lord, Lord, pop that steel on down. Sure enough, next day they had a steam drill out on the job. Big red steam drill, shiny smokestack sticking up in the air. Well, they had old John Henry over there, muscles rippling in the sun, sweat running off in gimlets. Ringlets. Well, the captain, Head of all the railroad workers looked over at that steam drill and smiled. Then he turned over and he looked over at John Henry. Those beady little eyes. He snarled over John Henry. Hi there, John. <laughs> well, John Henry didn't say nothing. Just spit on his hands, picked up those two nine-pound hammers, walked slowly over towards that steam drill, spit on the steam drill. <laughs> then went over and spit on the captain. <laughs> well, it got to be about 12 o'clock starting time for the race. Every railroad man in the county was out there that day because they knew if John Henry lost that race, they were all out of a job. Well, it got to be starting time for the race. John Henry is up there at that starting line. That steam drill was up there at that starting line. Big smokestack sticking right up in the air. A little bit of spit on it. <laughs> well, the captain walked up to the starting line. I swear you could hear a pin drop that day. He took out his pistol and pointed it up in the air. John Henry spit on it. <laughs> Actually, this was about the greatest race in the history of man. The race between a man and a machine. He pointed that pistol up in the air and shot it off. Bang. <laughs> that started that race.
when the steam drill was going on the left side and John Henry hammered on the right. The steam drill made ten feet, John Henry only three, then it hammered John Henry out of sight, Lord, Lord. Hammered John Henry out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> Hammered John Henry out of sight. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Yeah, that's right. John Henry lost that race. Dumb smart aleck thought he could be a steam drill. <laughs> what a thing for crying out loud. John Henry said to the captain, to the captain, by God I ain't no fool. Before I'll die with a hammer in my hand, I'm gonna get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. Get me a steam drill too. Get me a steam drill too, Lord, Lord. Get me a steam drill too. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
that dial, you're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 